This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show 105. I'm no genius. I am just as likely to make mistakes as anybody else. And so once I realized that, I was like, okay, what is the path of least resistance with highest ROI? And what I've found over the years is those are usually businesses that people don't think are sexy. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott. I'm your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, and I am here once again. Again, like every other amazing week with my amazing wife and co-host, Mrs. Carol Scott. Carol, I think you have something to say today, oh don't you? Oh my goodness, what a bittersweet day, right? We have had so much fun for the past 100 episodes over the past two years doing this show. It's our last one for a while, and we want to take a minute to thank so many People, all of our behind the scenes people, our editors, our producers, everybody at BP, Scott, and the whole rest of the crew, and especially you, our amazing listeners, our wonderful community. You have tuned in week after week. You've sent us feedback. You've given us ideas. You've poured so much love into our world, and we are so, so grateful for each and every one of you. So thank you to everybody who has made this show, this journey so much fun. And we hope you stay tuned for more great stuff that's in the works. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it is bittersweet. And this is our last episode of the business podcast, at least for a little while. But we do have some fun stuff in the works. And Carol and I are st- we're not going anywhere. You're going to see plenty of us, whether it be back here or somewhere else in the very near future. And I am thrilled to say that we are going out on a super high note on this episode. We have an amazing, amazing show today. We have somebody who we had to jump through hoops to record 
record this episode as our last one, and it was well worth it. Our guest today, her name is Cody Sanchez, and she has a tremendously diverse background. She is a former journalist. She is a mutual fund manager, MBA, PhD. I even mentioned that I should be calling her Dr. Cody Sanchez. She has done private equity. She's done angel investing. She's bought and sold small businesses. She's a VC. She's, I mean, just an amazing woman who has done so many amazing things over the years. And she's here today to basically help us get started. For anybody out there who is struggling to figure out how I get from step zero, step one, square one to becoming financially free, this is the episode for you. We talk about everything from why is financial freedom the most important thing and how do we start down the path? What are the specific steps that we should be taking to eventually achieve financial freedom? And Cody mentions throughout the episode, I guess she mentions towards the end that there's no reason why this should take anybody more than six to 12 months to really gain traction and start building that financial freedom. We talk about the path that we take, and one of the steps on that path is buying and building businesses. And we've talked a lot about on this sh- that on this show over the last two years. Should we buy businesses? Should we build businesses? Cody has a very unique take. From her perspective, we should be doing both, buying and building, but we should be focusing on specific types of businesses to buy and very different types of businesses to build. And so make sure you listen to the the distinction there and start thinking about what businesses you should be buying today and what businesses you should be building today. Then we talk about how we take those businesses that we're either buying or building and how we put them on autopilot, how we build them up to the point where we can hand them off to somebody else, make them self-sufficient, and then take our time and devote it to whatever the next project is. Then Cody tells us what the number one thing we should be focused on today if we want to be building our brand, if we want to be building a business, if we want to be successful and become financially free. So make sure you listen for that one thing, and and it, it doesn't go by quickly. We talk about it for a while, but listen for that one thing we should be learning about today. Next, we talk about why building a media company and a media brand may be the next big thing. Cody talks about how throughout history, there's been different types of leverage that have allowed people to become financially free and to become wealthy, and how today that piece of leverage may very well be an audience and how you can start building your audience and building your brand. Cody actually provides a step-by-step approach to building that audience and to building that brand. Make sure you listen to the very end because we get into buying and investing in businesses, small businesses. So we talk about angel investing and Cody provides some tremendous advice for anybody out there that's looking to start buying into businesses or doing angel investing or anything like that. Literally, this is one of the most jam-packed episodes of with, with just tips, advice, just amazing ideas for anybody looking to build financial freedom. I am So sorry that this is the last episode for now, but I'm so thrilled that this is the episode we're ending with because it really sums up so much of what we talked about for the last two years. Okay. Wow. That was a mouthful, and I I probably strung that out for a long time, but uh, I I think you're really going to love this episode. Let me reiterate what Carol said. Thank you, everybody, so much for uh, for tuning in for the last two years. And I really hope you enjoy this amazing episode that we have for you today with Cody Sanchez. For more info about anything we talk about today, check out our show notes, biggerpockets.com slash bizshow105. 
That's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow105. Without any further ado, let's welcome Cody Sanchez to the show. Cody, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. I've got to tell you, Jay and I are absolute huge fans. We have so been looking forward to this conversation with you, and you have so much amazing knowledge and expertise to share. So thank you for being here with us today. I'm stoked. <laughs> we are really excited to have you. So I, I need to start with this question because I've been following you for a little while now. And every time I listen to you or hear about you or hear from you, it's kind of like there's a different facet of Cody Sanchez that I learned about. I believe you started out as a journalist. You were a mutual fund manager. You have an MBA from Georgetown. You have your PhD. So I guess we should be calling you Dr. Cody Sanchez. I apologize for not. You are a VC. You're an angel investor. You do a whole lot of stuff that you're a media, a social media icon. You've got a huge social media following. So I guess my first question is, I'd love to get your take on kind of who you are, what you are, where you started and what you've become. But I also want to ask, how do you have the time to do all of these things? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing is I really like to start things. So I'm a big foundational, let's lay the foundation, let's start this. And then once something gets to a point that's um, where it's kind of rolling and everything is moving along, I usually back out. And that's when I want a team in there that's going to continue running it. And and a perfect example for that is Entourage Effect Capital, which is our uh, cannabis private equity fund. You know, we raised the first couple hundred million dollars. And as that business has stabilized and we've started growing the business and we have a team to fundraise, now other people do most of the work there. And I sit on the advisory board and bring investments and ideas, but I don't have to be actually cold calling people for uh, investments anymore. So I think the most important thing is that I basically build myself out of a job in every job, career, business that I create. And that's been just huge for my ability to keep creating and to not stagnate. I, I love that. And so it, it's a hard thing to do because we all talk about this idea of working on your business and not in your business. And in the entrepreneurship world, we, we often talk about you are the one that builds your business. But then if you do it correctly, you hand it off to a team and you kind of start to slowly extract yourself from the business so that you can take either a more visionary role or you can move on to the next thing. But for so many of us, that that's a pipe dream. It, it's hard to actually do in practice, even though it sounds so good in theory. What are some of your piece of advice for how you actually go about extracting yourself from each of these businesses after you've kind of gotten them rolling and moving and, and to the point where you feel like they could be self-sufficient? Rule number one, don't operate from a place of fear. The, the biggest reason why most people, even employees, won't be able to progress and move forward is that they're scared that if they hire somebody smarter than them or they hire somebody who's better at these skills than them, that that person will supersede them. And instead, what usually happens is you're seen as a finder of talent, and that's actually a superpower in today's age. And so um, I would say the very first thing is don't operate from a place of fear at all. Always try to find the best talent you humanly can, and then find talent that actually fills in your weaknesses. Like my very first business, well, my very, very first big business was an asset management firm in Latin America, and I am not so great at details in any way, shape, or form. And so, you know, I'm 
anal retentive on things in that I want branding this way and I want the words this way. But when it comes to, oh, there's a grammatical mistake here, or we were supposed to send at 9.50 and I accidentally AM and I accidentally sent it for 9.50 PM, like that's the type of stuff I do. And so I hired somebody who was so detail oriented that like she got excited organizing my wallet when she'd meet me because it was a mess and she wanted it to be all organized. And so like, that is, I think one of the most important things. Don't be scared to hire people better than you and then hire people that are better than you at your weaknesses. And then the last thing is realize eventually, if you want to do this, you either need a company that supports this kind of behavior that will see this ability and continue to promote you because they realize that you are a talent finder, or you're going to have to start your own thing. And when you start your own thing, it's much easier to hire really incredible people, but then you've got to figure out how do I incentivize them? And you know, one of my biggest pet peeves, one of the partners at one of the firms I worked at he was all on one of our analysts. You know, he's not doing a good enough job. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. And I said, well, have you talked to the guy? And he's like, well, yeah, I told him this is what he needs to do. And I said, well, that's not really talking to him. That's talking at him, right? You're, you're trying to work in this 19th century model of thinking that you own somebody. And guess what? Nobody owns anybody these days. There is a hugely transient market. And so I said, so you're never going to have great employees because you're trying to be a dictator and sorry, this is a democracy. And so, you know, what you need to do is then talk to the people. Lots of the people on my team right now, they're not motivated by money. They're motivated by, do they get to do what they like to do with whom they like to do it when they like to do it? And as long as I understand their motivators, then I can have a team that does a bunch of stuff so that I get to do the things I want to do. And lo and behold, they like the stuff they get to do. Very cool. I want to dig more into, Cody, a few of these overarching themes you're talking about, right? I heard you talk about, for example, finding the best talent now can truly be considered a superpower. I love that. And things like making sure you are not operating from a place of fear. You're finding people who are motivated by very different things than money, right? And all of those, I guess, are very different ways of thinking uh, from what has, has typically been done throughout the life cycle of business, which I think really lends well to contrarian thinking, which is what you are all about. So can you please tell us more? What is this whole concept of contrarian thinking, which implies going against the crowd? So tell us what do you mean by that? And how do we go about getting ourselves in that mindset too? Yeah. So at Contrarian Thinking, we have a motto, which is that we like to get people to think critically and cash flow unconventionally. So the goal is really this, that my belief through years of being human, human trafficking as a journalist and drug smuggling and seeing the base level of humanity and what we're all really striving for, and then going into finance and working with billionaires and multimillionaires and presidents of countries and you know CEOs of companies like Apple at the time when we told them how to invest in portfolios. What I've realized is there is no freedom without financial freedom. And so we start with financial freedom because I have a belief that when you are financially free, that is today's Maslow's pyramid and the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you are financially free, then you can actually get to what I think is the most important freedom for our 
you know, society today, ideological freedom, meaning you can say what you actually think, you can do what you think is right, and you can stand up for what you believe your ethics and moral compass are. But until you have financial freedom, it's really scary to stand out from the crowd because, especially in today's world where you don't just get kicked out of one town, you might get kicked out of a society or platforms or whatever the case may be. Um, and so we started contrarian thinking because I was like, we've got to be able to question things. And we've got to be able to get people to financial freedom, because if we have those two things, then we are going to have a society that is actually rational and able to operate from reason as opposed to fear or prejudice. And so that's been our entire goal. And now we have, you know, 115,000 people along for the ride with us, which has been really cool to, to see. That's awesome. And I, I want to talk about that 115,000 people. But before we do that, I, I love this idea of the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs and really that need to be financially free because it, it sets yourself free. It, it opens yourself up to be able to focus on other things in your life that are important. It's, it's basically a gate. For those of our listeners who agree with that, and I assume all of us agree with that, but don't really know where to start, what is your just general um, uh, recommendations for a path towards financial freedom? Should we be starting businesses? Should we be getting a nine-to-five job and starting there? Should we be doing quote-unquote side hustles? What's, what's that formula that you recommend to people that are young and want to get on this path to financial freedom but don't really know where to start? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think it's just for the youth, right? So let's clarify that up front. I mean, you you all know this as well, given all the circles we run in. I think about my father who ran businesses for many years. He would never call himself an entrepreneur though. That was like a word he wouldn't have even thought of. He'd be like, I'm a small business owner. I run a small business. Um, no ego about it at all. But, um, but this is something that I've been putting into place for him too, because he's worked his entire life in largely sales, you know, real estate. He did commercial real estate, res, um, industrial real estate. And anyway, so, you know, those are hard ways to make a living, especially when you don't realize at the time, you know, for so many years, he was risk adverse. So he didn't do what you really have to do to make wealth in real estate, which is do the transactions, take the money and actually invest in assets, right? He just did transactions, 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 and tried to stack wealth that way. It's really hard to do. Um, but I think the most important thing is first, you've got to actually start with something that is so annoying, but so true. You've got to start with your mindset. And this is where I think most people fail is people love to play the victim. And I just get so annoyed by this because I'm a woman, I'm a Latina. In today's world, those are two things that are seen as, you know, sort of potential victim status. And I think it's ridiculous. I think, you know, in today's age, if we look at the numbers and we forget about the narrative for a second, take out emotions and look at the math, what we find is there's no better time to be alive from a uh, longevity perspective, from a decreased likelihood of violence perspective, from a prosperity perspective, and from a personal freedom, at least in the U.S. perspective. Literally, categorically, no better time to be alive. Now, does that mean that everything's easy? <laughs> no. Of course not. You know, this this whole part of life is really, really difficult. But I think where people have to start, if you can start with one thing, it's that everything that happens to you in your life is a product of your actions. And that sucks for people to take in, that you are your biggest personal responsibility. But heck, if you look at any religion from Buddhism to Islam to Christianity, that's what they all say. I mean, Buddha says life is suffering, right? 
And they actually, you know, there's a quote that I love from this book I'm reading right now called Inner Engineering that says, he says, I have given you so much suffering. Why are you not wise? And I love that line. And so we start with that. We start with, can you change your mindset to really appreciate all the difficulties that have been placed in front of you because they're going to make you harder, just like the more that you lift weights, the bigger and stronger you're going to get. And once we can get there, then we can move to financial freedom. And it all starts with personal responsibility. Are you allowing somebody to give you a paycheck? Or are you realizing how to create your own? Super. So I would like to know your path to financial freedom, right? You talked a little bit about you did all these other things before as a journalist, as an analyst working in all these different spaces. And you talked about kind of your thought process around why you needed to become financially free to be able to do all of these things. And you shifted your mindset. What were the first couple of steps you took or the first couple of businesses that you invested in or started in whatever to pull you out of that being rely uh, relying on somebody else giving you a paycheck versus you creating your own paycheck? What were a couple of those things? Yeah. Well, first, I think in the very beginning, you want to earn as much as possible. So my, for, I'd say for like the first two to five years of my career, I was optimizing for the highest salary humanly imaginable. So to find the highest salary human imaginable, I went to finance, right? At the time that was the highest paid. Now it's probably tech, but you can make a lot of money in both. And so I optimized for my salary. I would negotiate my salary at least twice a year, if possible, three times a year, if really possible on quarterly bonuses. And so, you know, if there's actually statistics, like you can look at the difference between somebody who makes $100,000 a year, starts out with a 10% increase year over year, and they negotiate a salary increase every year versus somebody who starts out with $100,000, exact same thing. They get their 10% increase year over year. They don't negotiate a salary. At the end of their career, the difference is $2 million. And so start with where you are. You can always negotiate because the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. So that's what I did first is I would negotiate my salary and I'd negotiate, you know, I wouldn't say like, Hey boss, I want to make more money. I'd be like, I want to make a hundred thousand dollars this year. Right now I make, I don't know, $70,000. What would it take for me to get to seven from 70 to a hundred thousand dollars? And then my boss would say something like, well, I don't know, Cody, that's a big job. You know, that, that, that kind of freaks bosses out. And you say, well, how about this? So if I actually increased my sales by 25%, then it would be here. And what if I decreased our bottom line by this, then it'd be here. Then I'd make you guys maybe 2X what I bring in. Do you think that that would be enough to get a hundred K? And they're like, uh, yeah, sure. Perfect. I'm going to write that up. Would you mind reviewing that? And then if I get there, we can talk. And so um, I would do that every single year. And then I started to take every dollar that I made, rich dad, poor dad, you don't have to recreate the wheel. I took every dollar that I made and I put it towards investments. At the time, all I knew was the stock market. So, but it could be real estate too. And so I put it in the stock market and I put it in things that earned money for me. And then I would say about five years in, no, actually, I guess it was more like three years in, I started doing side hustles and side businesses. They all failed. None of them made money in like the first five years, I don't think. But I learned a lot about how to create stuff online, about how to sell a business, about what kind of businesses I don't want to buy. And just, and these were websites. One was like a 
sort of a news site. One was a marketplace for stylists. They were very small scale, but taught me like, oh, I know how to make a dollar online. That's actually really powerful. And so that was my my model. And so I start with with earn as much as possible. And then I go to learn. And then I go to learn, earn. And what was the last one? Oh, and then you take the money and, and you invest in big risks. I I love that. And it's so funny because what you said very much mirrors Carol, my experience and what we like to teach our kids, what we often talk about on the show. We started in Silicon Valley. We were in, in tech for a long time. We made a bunch of money and then we used that money to start buying assets, not to start, like as we were making money, we were buying assets. And then once we realized, okay, now we have a nice little nest egg, we have some assets, those things are growing for us. Then we said, okay, now it's time to start with the side businesses. And from there, we grew into additional investments. And now we do angel investing and all these other things that I know you do as well. And it's one of those tried and true paths. And we often hear so many people say, no, um, don't do the education thing. Don't do the college thing. Don't do the nine to five thing. I mean, just go out there when you're 18 years old and start a business and make $10 million. And it doesn't always work that way. And there's nothing to be ashamed of by starting with a nine to five job. And I love the way you said, figure out what your highest and best use is or your highest and best opportunity is when you're looking for that nine to five job, make as much money as you can, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. I want to also, and I know I'm just repeating the things you said, but it's, it's such gold. I love, and as a hiring manager for a long time, I was at Microsoft for most of my career, I did a lot of hiring. Managing people that would come to me during our annual reviews and would say something like exactly what you said. I currently make $70,000. I want to make $100,000. What can I do to get from $70,000 to $100,000? They've now put the onus on me to help them achieve their goals. Instead of asking me, they've instructed me to tell them. And now this forces me to come up with a plan for them. And then when they carry out that plan, I'm now somewhat obligated to actually help them achieve their goals because I created that plan for them. So that is just absolutely brilliant. So thank you for that. And I, again, I apologize for just repeating what you said, but oh, it's I such gold it. that it just it just needed to be said again. Yeah, and, the, and there's one little thing I wanted to add, which is I love your comment about nine to five not being bad in the beginning because I totally agree. There's a saying in investing that you should never invest with somebody who hasn't already lost $500,000 because the first $500,000 that you invest in, at least this is a public market saying, you usually have no idea what you're doing. You know, you're learning on somebody else's dime. And so the saying is that like, that's why you don't want to take your first $500,000 and put it out into the markets and try to guess which stock is going to go up and down. You use OPM, other people's money to do it because they can, they can handle the losses more, these really big institutions. And so I think it's the same thing a little bit with businesses. I don't think there's anything wrong with starting out by learning on somebody else's dime, get paid to learn. And then once you see some opportunities, you can start laying those on top of it, but you don't have to have the first losses be your own and, you know, be sitting in your parents' basement wondering how to pay for, you know, your night out or whatever the case may be. Super, super. So going along this path of earn, learn, invest. So you took this path of, like you said, maximizing your income potential, strategically planning how to make that happen, negotiating every step of the way. Once we have done that, where we've built up um, some money to work with, what do you recommend are the right type of businesses 
to be investing in? Are they the big, you know, like we talked about earlier, are they the finance and the tech and those big flashy things that have that really big carrot at the end? Or is it something else? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think most people, myself included, are going to build the next Tesla, Facebook, Microsoft, whatever the case may be. I mean, I, I think one of the most powerful things is when you can realize that innately, if it's true, you are not so much smarter than anybody else. You know, I'm no genius. I am just as likely to make mistakes as anybody else. And so once I realized that, I was like, okay, so if I am not going to be the next Elon Musk, then again, what is the path of least resistance with highest ROI, um, return on investment? And what I've found over the years is those are usually businesses that people don't think are sexy. And so there's sort of two different things I like to do. If I'm going for a pure monetary return, then I like to buy what I call boring businesses. So these are businesses that are things like laundromats, HVAC, care, home services, you know, uh, what else? Um, Podcast production services. I own one. Um, Videography services. These are things that do not have a moat around them. You're going to have a lot of competition in these businesses, but typically that competition isn't incredible, right? There's a very low expectation set for your house cleaning services, right? There's a very low expectation set for your lawn care services. And so if you can just beat those low expectations, you can have a really, really profitable, long-tenured business. So I like to buy those types of businesses. But it doesn't fuel me to only own those types of businesses. So the second type of business I like to build as opposed to buy are high margin, low people businesses. And those are things like my newsletter, Contrary and Thinking. We run this business, which is a seven-figure business now, and we run it with four contractors and myself. You know, the business was profitable day one because I did it myself. And the same thing with financial services firms. So raising syndicates, raising funds, you know, they can be profitable day one because you don't need a lot of people to execute on these businesses. So boring businesses for you to buy and cash flow, and then high margin, low people businesses for you to actually build and run. Those are the two I like. And then these type of businesses can be really fun to run. They can be sexy. They could be tech. They could be SaaS. They could be VC, but these businesses will be your sort of guaranteed bread and butter every month. Love it. And, and yeah, we, we often talk about when you talk about low barrier to entry for these boring businesses, the advice we often give to people is answer your phone, um, have good customer service because you'd be surprised how very low barrier to entry or low barrier to success these businesses are. And sometimes literally just being responsive to customers will set you apart from, from your competition. And it doesn't have to be, like you said, the next Facebook or Tesla. I love that. So you've done the nine to five thing. You've done the private equity thing. You've done the starting and building businesses thing. What are you doing today? How would you define yourself? Because you do all of these things. If if you meet somebody at a cocktail party and they say, Cody, what is it that you do? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I need a better pitch on this lately. Um, So I used to say, it's been funny over the course of the year, I usually say something like finance. I keep it pretty short because then I don't want to get into all of it. So it depends. Like if you're sitting next to me on a plane, I'll probably say, 
I, I'm a salesperson. Do you want to talk about the product that I have right now so that they won't talk to me anymore? Um, <laughs> but if I'm, um, if I'm at a cocktail meeting, I want to impress somebody or a cocktail party and I maybe want to impress somebody. I, I usually say something like, you know, I, I founded a media company and I run financial syndicates, uh, investments in a micro PE portfolio. So I, you know, might make myself sound fancy there, but I, I think, uh, you know, these days what I'm realizing, and I don't have a good term for it. So I got to work on this is that I have a belief that in the future, venture capital uh, firms, private equity firms will also be in the content business. The two will be interchangeable. And this is pretty contentious right now, especially in PE. And, you know, a lot of my partners over the years have completely disagreed with this at the maximum high level, because there's a saying in finance, which is get rich quietly. And, and that's because historically these people are driving Ferraris and cufflinks and, you know, I don't know, strippers and whatever they're doing. And uh, not really my cup of tea. And so th- the difference today is I think I'm an investor first and foremost. I make all of my money, most of my money off of companies I've invested in, companies I've bought, companies I've sold, and companies I've built. Investor hat. But this media hat that I have, which is contrarian thinking, an ecosystem of newsletters, which on top of that is an ecosystem of education companies, so that teach different courses, masterminds, events, et cetera, which on top of that is a series of, let's call them copywriting uh, products and info products online. So that business is a direct funnel and lead gen to all of my investing activities. It gives me my investors. It gives me my deal flow. It gives me ideas uh, and it gives me an unfair advantage. And I think in the future, the VCs that don't have this other arm, uh, your money won't be enough. Right now, we just, we throw money around and we say like, oh, I have billions under management and thus you should beg me to invest in your company. And going forward, because money is relatively prolific. It's it's all around for the best investors. What they're going to want is the new type of leverage, which is audience paired with capital. And if you don't have the two things, I don't think you'll get in deals. And we can see if I'm right in the next 10 years. Well, and this is exactly what, as you're, as you're talking through this, Cody, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at you. I'm like, this is exactly, exactly what we wanted to dig in to you. We wanted to pick your brain about and talk with you because we so firmly believe exactly what you're saying, right? As we know, kind of online capital, um, VC, all of it, it goes in cycles and it's grown differently. And we very, maybe Jay, not as much as I, I very firmly believe that this is just the direction of everything is the whole online world is all going to be about creating media and creating content. And that is what is going to, that's just, everybody's going to do online. It's all completely interconnected, right? And, And not just, not just build media and content, but also build a brand around that media and content and the opportunity for the small guys and gals to be able to compete with the large content brands because we've kind of leveled the playing the uh, the internet's leveled the playing field for for content creation. Totally. I think and you're right. Exactly. Thank you for thank you for wrapping that into there. So I would love to know what I want to I would love to brainstorm with you about about this, how you have done this. Did you, you started, you talked about like your newsletter, the education, the copyrighted info, that type of thing. Right now, I think a lot of people are in this whole, I want to say like early stages of building their own personal brand online, but being limited, almost not necessarily limited, but haven't blown it out 
a lot further than like Instagram, Facebook, maybe some TikTok, whatever, like building, taking this whole notion of building your personal brand. But you, I'm wondering if you started there and then started expanding out into all these other channels that have helped you build out this entirely robust media company. So I guess I'm wondering kind of what your path is. And along with that, how do I, for example, somebody who's just doing some stuff on, again, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, maybe a, you know, maybe a little show here and there, whatever. What are the steps you would recommend for people to capitalize upon what the thing is that they're most passionate about, whether it be pet sitting or whether it be laundromats or whether it be financial freedom, whatever, starting small and growing it out into some big, rich, robust content platform that attracts uh, private equity and venture capital. Yeah. Well, two skills I would start with. First of all, if you could do one thing today, I'd say become exceptional at copywriting. Copywriting, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful skills in tandem with the ability to code. I don't have that skill set. Um, I don't know how to code. But if you think about leverage, and let me just explain a theory that I have here for a moment. There's essentially been a history of leverage shift throughout human history. So we started out as leverage being humans, right? It was human capital, labor, right? And so originally slavery, and then fiefdoms, and then employees. And that was the way that you took your time and multiplied it, right? Through other humans, labor. Then the second thing we had was, oh, and all of the wealth in the world was created through labor. If you look at the pyramids, how are they creative? Massive human capital. If you looked at Rome, how was it creative? Massive human capital thrown at war, right? Second type of, of leverage, capital. This is when the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds came to their great wealth. Why did they? Why were they able to achieve great wealth? That was the advent of the banking system. So when the banking system was created, that was when capital was able to be proliferated. There was debt, and that debt allowed people to actually raise a lot of money and build big things. Second type of leverage. Third type of leverage is code, right? That's Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. These guys were able to code. And instead of their leverage being capital or their leverage being human labor, their leverage was bots online, little robots that were able to, to multiply their efforts. And then finally, there's audience. Audience, I believe, is the next stage of leverage. And these all build on each other, right? The best companies have all four. But but audience is a way for, for people who don't have an insider access, right? You need insider access to have capital. You need insider access to have labor. And for coding, you need insider knowledge. You have to be able to do the thing, and it's not an easy thing. Audience you know, there are, there are people online, as you know, that have amassed massive audiences that probably aren't the brightest crayon in the box, right? But that leverage, if you know how to capitalize on it, will be incredibly important. So where I would start is I would start with copywriting. Why in this world of videos and that being more important? I would start with copywriting because if you can write out your ideas succinctly and clearly, you can usually speak them more succinctly and clearly. And everything from your pitch deck that you give to an investor in order for them to invest in you to the videos that you put out in order for you to get a massive audience starts with the words that you speak, which come from often the words you write down in preparation to speak them. And so I would start there. And there's lots of great ways to do this. I think the best way to learn copywriting is read some of the greats. I mean, I, I really like reading everything The Hustle puts out in Sam Parr. I like Sean Purry. I like um, Neville Medora, a copywriting course. I think I'm pretty good at it. So you can go to Contrarian Thinking. Um, and I would read those. And then what you need from that 
is you need a voice. And so when you read my stuff, your goal should be this when you're putting out content. Repel those who you do not want in your group. Attract incredibly aggressively those you do. So your goal should not be that everybody loves you. Your goal should be that they love you or they hate you. The two. And I have to remind myself of that constantly, that I am in an active battle to push away those people that are not my people and to draw in those people that are my people. And that it's okay to not have people like you. Now, my brand's pretty, I don't think it's the most aggressive, but it's a little edgy. It's a little aggressive. But lots of people's aren't. You can be very soft and flowery and kind and lovely. You'll still repel the people that aren't into that, but you can do it multiple ways. So I would start with those two things. Do you have what your voice is? And what I've found is if you're hiding in any way, shape, or form, if you're not who you actually are, that shit, people realize that online. And so the more that I've stepped into this super annoying buzzword of being relatively authentic wherever I am in this moment, the more people are attracted. And the more that I try to do it just like somebody else, the less people roll with it. So that's that's where I'd start is copywriting, voice. And then the, the third leg is if you are incredible at writing and you have an incredible voice, but nobody hears it, well, it doesn't really matter. And so that next part is distribution. But a lot of people start with distribution on things. And I wouldn't do that. Start with making your product and what you talk about and put out there as engaging as possible. And then focus relentlessly on getting all the earbuds to hear it. Wow. I, I just, I love everything you're saying. And what you were saying about repelling those who aren't right for your brand, it really resonates with me because it's hard because everybody knows me. I have this, this, this brand in my, my niche in real estate and, um, and I'm, I'm a people pleaser and I always want everybody to love me because I feel like if I if, if not everybody loves me, I'm limiting my potential audience. I, there was a quote somebody said on the show a couple of weeks ago, which went something like um, half the people like hot tea, half the people like cold tea. You're not going to build a business around providing warm tea. Like you can't make everybody happy. And, and sometimes you just need to remind yourself that there are seven, eight billion people in the world. You can repel 99% of those. 99% of those people can hate you. And there may be even be some advantages for them hating you. But let's say there is zero advantage for them hating you. Even just 1% of those eight billion people is enough to make you the most popular person on the planet. So it, it's, it's a fantastic reminder. So thank you for that. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to go into the third thing. So learn copy, learn copywriting, know your voice. And then the third thing is distribution. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit about that because you've been really good at that. You have an, an amazing following. Um, you seem to know your audience well, and you seem to have a very focused strategy for your distribution. Can you give us some tips for how we can be better at distribution. Let's say we know how to write. We've found our niche. We've found our message. We found our voice. We know who our audience is. And now we want to go and I'm not going to use the word monetize because that sounds too transactional. But at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. What do we do to capture that audience, the, the attention of that audience? Yeah. Well, so I think, so I, uh, monetization comes after distribution in my opinion. Okay. So first you want to get a little bit of a, an audience underneath you. You want enough people to have received free value from you consistently that you have a few raving fans. You have a few people that read everything you do that comment on everything you do. And one of the things you want to do up front is overserve those people. It's hard because sometimes I'm like, Oh my gosh, Josh, again, there he is. Um, but you actually want to make Make sure that you're commenting and saying like, yeah, buddy, appreciate you. Like, thanks for being here, you know? And so before I got to monetization, I started with distribution and I, for a year, wrote my newsletter for completely free. Um, so I didn't make a penny off of it. I don't think you have to do it that way. Uh, there's plenty of ways to monetize earlier. I just chose it that way. And I think I was on Instagram for maybe two or three years with free stuff, not very thoughtful things to be fair. It was sort of like what I wanted to share at the moment, which is not a good growth strategy by the way, but you know, a couple years on Instagram for free and a year of the newsletter for completely free. Then I think the, the biggest thing that hit my change in subscribers is I found similar audiences to mine and I started to serve them. So the best way I think to do that is through, you can pick your platform. Your platform could be Twitter. It could be Facebook. It could be Reddit, but you need to have somewhere where there's a grouping of individuals that are the people that you want to attract. They're your people. They're your target audience. And what you want to start doing is getting the content to them. So you want to use somebody else's. It's just like, um, you know, uh, who is it that talks about the 10,000 hours? I can't remember the name of that book, but uh, yep, uh, it's outliers and no, oh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, you got me there. We could we could pay uh, Pictionary. Um, so <laughs> the uh, so you want to steal a little bit of attention from somebody else's audience that's similar to yours. So for me, that was very graciously a group called the Hustle. They were very similar to mine, and um, Trends. They were similar to mine as well. And I went in Facebook groups and I started serving them. I wrote ideas. I wrote lengthy sort of, um, not blog posts, but comments that were essentially like, Hey, you know, here's a blog post in 30 seconds. If you guys think this is interesting, I'll comment below my article. And so I would get a couple hundred subscribers by having really good tailored value added content on these other people's big platforms. And so let's say that somebody's listening to this and they're in the wellness space or like the, you know, healthcare, they want to, they want to, I don't know, they want to, Oh no, let's do real estate. Cause a lot of people are big, like bigger pockets is a perfect one to do it with. Go in the bigger pockets, Facebook community, write a bunch of uh, posts that are wildly specific breakdowns of a deal. You did the mistakes you made dollar amounts, what you would have done differently. And then say, and I just want to get your perspective on it at the end on X and Y and Z, whatever it is. And then 
ask and then put a com- put in the comments the link to one of your articles or a lead capture and then respond to every single comment and then do that twice a week every week for a couple weeks and do it not just in bigger pockets do it in tony robbins group do it in my first million do it in as many groups as you can the same thing until you find what you'll find is you'll start with like 30 of these groups and then you'll narrow it down and you'll get to like three or five of these groups that actually really resonate with you then you double down on those and you forget all the rest. And that's probably where I got my first 10,000 subscribers was piggybacking off of other people's audience in a really thoughtful and value-added way. To the point that this isn't spam. It's huge differentiation. These groups now ask me to give them advice. They ask for consulting on the business that they're doing. They ask me to join panels with them and whatever, because I've actually really served the community with cool ideas that served me too. It's totally viable to be mutually beneficial. I love this. And so Cody, it's almost sounding like you're using the idea through, um, through commenting on other forums and that type of thing to attract and grab your audience and figure out what they are looking for and custom tailoring those messages to them. It sounds like you're really using this notion, this idea of testing a business idea before necessarily spending money to build an audience. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's a little bit simultaneous. I like to talk about building in public. So while I am looking at a deal, I'll share that deal with this group. Hey, I'm looking to buy this business and here's the metrics on this business. And I think this makes sense here. What do you guys think here? Here's the stuff that I don't like about the business or, Hey, I'm thinking of starting this idea. Here's all the best resources I use for the tech stack for the idea. And am I missing any of those? So I think you do it simultaneous so that they get to see then they know it's real, right? It's not theory. You're not saying I'm thinking about doing this. You're like, I'm actually doing it or I did it. And then you're, you're, you share the the missteps too. You're not like, this is how I made $20,000 in 24 hours. Like you can too. You know, you're like, Hey, I, you know, this product is now doing $10,000 a month. That's really cool. But I lost 50,000 up up front and here's how I lost the 50 K. And like, there's probably a smarter way to do it. And here's how I do it next time. I love it. You're building trust through through relatability. Yep. I'm curious to know, as you were engaging with this audience, which you built, like your first 10,000 people, for example, were you then able by continuing to provide content, get answers from them, build trust and, and, and all of those things, were you able to tap into that group to help you determine what new type of content you needed to be building out? What would serve them the best and ultimately help you expand your business? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I tried to get them to comment a lot. Well, first of all, let's start with this. I love email. I think everybody should capitalize on email if at all humanly possible, even if you're sending videos via email, because then the algorithm can't mess with you on any of these platforms. So if you don't have an email list, I'd get one because you actually own those customers as opposed to any other type of platform. You don't own those customers. So, um, when I did email, I made sure the email provider I used allowed for comments And I would respond to every single comment of theirs. And I would, the the more I've gone along, the more I've realized the benefit of asking questions to your audience in your emails, not fake questions too. Like, you know, comment. Yes. If you also want to, no, no, no. It's like, I'm going to do a breakdown of three businesses over the next 30 days. I'm considering this one, this one, this one. Can you tell me which one you guys want to hear about next and why? 
uh, like best answers will win, you know, unless I don't like your answer and then I'm going to do what I want anyway. It's like, you know, something. And, um, so I would, so I did a lot of that. And then I judged a little bit by popularity, just what posts did people actually like? What did they retweet a ton? You know, what, what had the highest engagement and reshares were pretty data driven. And then we double down on the stuff that works and get rid of the stuff that doesn't. But I think also you have to be a little bit of your own compass. These people are following or interacting with you for a reason, right? And so because of that, often if I found something interesting, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I don't, you know, I'm I'm writing about this because I think this is interesting and valuable and you guys should too. And so I, I think that's good too. You, you, you don't want to just be driven by the mob. I love that. And so basically what I'm hearing is authenticity is your secret to success and, and, and following your, your personal compass. Does that, I, I mean, how much does, and I want to make sure to ask this the right way because I, I don't want it to imply, but we, we all, um, that all of us that, that have a brand that maintain the brand, um, will, will obviously know that there are things that, I, okay, I'm going to use me personally. There are things I could say and things that I could do. I'm, I'm, I'm a geeky engineering type that's built a brand around being an investor and being outgoing. And uh, it's not completely authentic for me, but I recognize that that's what my audience expects. So I have to get out of my comfort zone. How do you, how do you balance the being authentic with also giving your, your audience what they expect where it may not be what is a hundred percent authentic to who you are, if that makes sense. Uh, totally. I mean, I always joke and I think I retweet this like at least once a month, which is like, uh, be authentic dot, dot, dot. Humans aren't ready to hear what I really think. And so, um, <laughs> I, mean, I think, I think there's a portion of it where one, I don't share a lot of personal stuff. So like, you won't see my family, you won't see my friends, you won't see my fiance, uh, on a lot of the things that I do. I keep that relatively private. You know, I'm not sharing what I'm eating ever. Like there's, there's this separation between my personal life to some degree and whatever my brand is. And then also I try to lead people, you know, I think about it similar to, you know, I'd like to, to follow any of the greats. So if you think about what anyone who created a big movement did, they didn't start with the most aggressive ideas that they had, right? Like if you look at MLK, like he was first talking about unity and he was talking about walking together. And then like eventually got to a point where it was like, no, we want, you know, full civil rights and, you know, whatever the case may be. And so I think you want to kind of start shifting them towards the ideas that you want. And that allows you over time to get more and more true to who you are. At least if you're the type of person that doesn't want to come out, you know, hard at them like that. And that would give you some consternation. So for me, you know, a lot of the ideas that I have, I probably don't share a hundred percent of what I'm thinking. I share that with some closer held groups because I know that a lot of the audience isn't fully ready for it. You know, every post isn't going to be like, oh, you are jobless and you have no savings, your fault. Like that's not really going to help people. You got to lead them a little bit. And so I'd say do the same thing with your personal brand. You start to lead them to the person that you want to be. And then also don't be afraid to change. Like look at some of the big names out there. Like, I mean, Tony Robbins, perfect example, went from like mindset to complete shift to financial guru, guru and investment advice to health and wellness. James Altucher from like 
you know, losing everything all the time or from finance to losing everything all the time, to being an artist, to making money online, to chess. So I actually think it's okay to be multifaceted, but in the beginning, you do want to have your niche. Like in the beginning, you want to say, I am here to give you financial advice and to help you think differently. And then you can start getting broader as you go and you kind of increase those concentric circles. Very, very cool. And I'm loving these examples of the people are using. James, Tony, you yourself, though, Cody, you are also very multifaceted in the things that you do. And another thing that we that I think you do that we haven't really dug into yet on this show is all the angel investing that you do in so many people in our community are so incredibly interested in that notion. Um, we like to dispel the fact that it re- truly is more than just a buzzword now. It is another way you can look at increasing your financial freedom. So it, with it being such a hot topic, how do, how do just the normal people, how do people who are interested in going down this path of angel investing get started? Yeah, well, first I'd say, uh, don't do it. Don't do it just to make money. Because to be fra- to be fair, angel investing, I mean, you have to invest in 20 different deals for one or two of them to actually hit. So it should not be at all the first type of investing you do in any way, shape, or form in my mind. Shouldn't even be the second or third. I mean, in my opinion, probably the first, and this is not investment advice, it's just what I did. Like I would start out with stocks, broad indices in the stock market, ETFs, low-cost investments. That's what I did. And then I went to more active funds. So then it was like, you know, active mutual funds, things like uh, leveraged finance, um, you know, inflation protected securities, depending on the time period. Then I went to uh, alternatives, hedge funds, private equity, REITs. So I got more and more aggressive as I understood financial investments. Then I went to hard assets, real estate, right? Multifamilies, um, you know, apartment complexes, uh, industrial, commercial, I kind of moved up the chain in real estate. And then uh, finally, I started going and investing in individual businesses um, because they have the highest uh, risk reward ratio. You know, you can lose the most money on them, but you can make the most money on them, right? And so I wouldn't start with angel investing. The, the couple caveats to that would be, if you can structure deals where you make money on day one, where it's a cash flowing asset on day one, you can actually de-risk sizably from real estate um, in a couple of ways, but not completely. So for instance, when I do a deal, most deals that I invest in, if I'm going to go buy a I don't know. Let's go. Let's say that I'm going to go buy a CPG company, a, a coffee mug manufacturing company. This company, when I underwrite it, I want it to be profitable. So I want it to be making at least a hundred thousand dollars. I want the business to be making in total profit, hundred thousand profit in revenue. I want the business to be making less than three million dollars. Then you don't have to compete with the private equity guys as much. I want the business to be very simple you know, straightforward business. We're not trying to cure cancer. We're not trying to create the next, next SaaS company. It's very straightforward. Um, and I want the business to be able to ideally pay me back all of my money within a three max five year timeline. So I usually buy businesses two to three X their profit. So if I have a business that, that I'm buying, that's making a hundred thousand dollars, I'll buy that business for 200 to $300,000 at the end of two to three years, I'll have gotten all of my principal, my initial money back. And then everything on top of that is gravy. And the reason that that's cool is because in real estate, what's your normal mortgage? 30 years, right? 
Obviously, you can do shorter term for commercial or industrial lease, but we're still talking 10, 15 years. And so if I can have a business that has a much shorter risk window and typically a quite a high cash on cash return uh, or the return on the money that you put down, I can probably get the best investment return in small businesses out of any type of investment. I, I love it. And there's a great there was a, a great lesson in there just listening to you describe your criteria. Too often I talk to um, people who want to get into investing in businesses, angel investing, investing in syndications that invest in businesses. And they'll come to me because they know I do a bunch of that. And they'll say, how do I get into this? And I'll say, well, what kind of businesses, what, do you, what are you looking to do specifically? Like, oh, I don't care. Tech businesses or lawn care companies or, or, or anything. I don't care. Media companies. Okay. What, what size company? I don't care. Big company little company. And a lot of these people are, are real estate investors because that tends to be my network. And I'll say, well, you invest in real estate. What, what, when you invest in real estate, what do you look for? Oh, I look for between two and four units. I want something that has a cap rate of 6%, generally between $200,000 and $400,000 um, that doesn't need too much renovation so that I'm cash flowing in year two. Blah. And I was like, do you hear the difference in how you just described how you look for real estate investments and business investments. And when I listen to you just discuss what your criteria is for business investments, that's what most real estate investors have for real estate. You know what you're looking for. You know why you want it. That's your area of expertise. That's your niche. That's what you understand. And it allows you to basically weed out 99% of deals in the first five minutes because they don't fit your, let's call it the, your buy box. And so it, it's a great lesson there for anybody that's looking to get into a new space, investing space, whether it's buying businesses or anything else, understanding your buy criteria and really focusing on it when you make investment decisions. So let me ask you a question. Let's say for some of us who might be interested in going out and starting to do a little bit of investing, maybe we want to go on to AngelList and invest through a syndicate. Maybe we want to come to you and invest through through you, I, uh, assuming you offer investments. How do we go about figuring out what the right criteria is for us? Yeah. Well, it's such a good point you make and it's so critical. So I hope people take away that there's riches and niches, like niche down, know your particular segment always, but it's okay that you don't know that up front, which is why anytime I get into an industry, I always invest first in either funds or syndicates because I don't know enough to do it myself. And I think that's usually the biggest mistake that people make is people go into a new segment and try to go direct then they have a one point of failure. So if something happens to the one company that they buy or invest in, they've had a massive loss and they have no diversification of loss, right? And I don't like that. Um, now, once you understand a space, then it's okay to have one point of failure because you have a really great re return potential and you've de-risked yourself from understanding the industry. But where I would start for almost anything, if you're going to invest in small businesses, start by investing in a fund. If you're going to start investing in startups, start by investing in a VC fund. Start, And then once you've looked at those, you can look at individual deals. And I think alongside a fund, you can do a syndicate too. You're basically paying for expertise. You're paying to learn. And the cool thing about investing in a fund or investing in syndicates is you get paid to learn. So theoretically, these deals are going to have a return on your capital. And simultaneously, if you're smart, and what I do is I, I try to bleed the managers as much as possible. Tell me why you invested in this. Can I look at one of your investment memos? Can I talk to the CEO? Can you tell me some companies you didn't invest in? I'll go really deep into the due diligence of the actual syndicate manager or the fund manager because I want to understand 
the business as fast as possible. And I want to get money to work so that I have skin in the game because you can learn all you want about things. But if you don't have any skin in the game, how much more do you pay attention to a game that you have bet on? So much more, right? Like if you go and you're watching the Super Bowl, but you have no money on the line, you're like, ah, when are the commercials going to be on? I don't really care. But if you have money on the line, things change. And so it's the same thing with investing. So that's where I would start. Now, the other thing that I think is really important for people is you want to figure out what do you actually want from it? To which people are like money. And I'm like, no, no, no. Because if I said, okay, great, I've got a hot deal for you. That's going to get you 20 bucks a month. Like that's not that interesting to you, right? So you need to find your parameters. So that's why for me, if I'm going to get involved in a deal, it has to have at least a hundred thousand dollars in profit to cash flow to me a year. Otherwise, it's not worth the time and the opportunity cost of everything else. So we have a 10-step process at Unconventional Acquisitions where we teach people to buy small businesses that essentially walks you through first understanding the opportunity so that there are all these businesses for sale. And the second step there is deal clarity. What do you want first? So I want $100,000 in passive income, or I would actually be okay with $50,000 in passive income if I didn't have to manage it, or you know whatever the case may be. And I want it located here, and I want to actually run the business, or I want somebody else to run the business, all these questions. And then you get to, okay, now what type of business will help you most achieve those goals? So people usually work backwards. They're like, I want to buy a laundromat. Cody talked about laundromats. Let's buy a laundromat. I'm like, wait a second. So if you had a laundromat and it made you $0, do you still want the laundromat? Of course not. You're buying the business for a goal. If you don't know your goal first, you're going to have no idea where you're going. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. So we're we're getting close to time here, but I, I before we ask kind of the final question of where you're going and what's next on the horizon for you, I want to talk just a little bit more about you're talking about this 10-step process. Um, I think you call it an unconventional acquisitions. Did I capture that correctly? Can yeah. can you just tell us a little bit more about that? I suspect our community um, will just eat that right up. So can you just give us a little more of info, a little bit more info, about what that's all about, what we can expect from it? Yeah, well, two things. One, if you like hearing about ways to cash flow and or buying businesses, sign up for Contrarian Thinking. It's at contrarianthinking.co because I'm going to struggle a little bit to include all of it in this little 60 seconds spiel that I'm going to give you. But so essentially what this is, is there's a giant opportunity. We touched on it, which is I think that in 2008, right? If you look back at 2008, what is the one thing you wish you would have done in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 17, I mean, basically for the past 10 years plus. Bought, 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 yeah, bought real estate, right? Real estate. Anywhere, anytime. You know, if people asked me, people asked us when I was at Goldman Sachs in 2009 and 10, they were like, which stocks do you like? And I was like, yes. And that's the same thing with real estate. Which real estate do you like? Yes. All of it. We'll buy all of it anywhere, right? And I think we are in that same period right now for small businesses. So I think for the next three to five years, we'll see what happens in the world. These small businesses are in pain. There's a massive amount of uh, boomers retiring. And so this segment of the market is really ripe. So if you believe that there's that opportunity, then basically what we did is I took my you know 12 years of investing on Wall Street and private equity and, and basically created our curriculum based on how I do deals to walk people through the entire buying a business process. 
steps one through 10. And we have a, a process whereby at the end, you should have, you know, you'll have 17 hours of video. Uh, you'll have 14, 15 templates from LOI to due diligence questions to, you know, a takeover checklist of how to buy a business. And it starts with, like I said, know the opportunity, then it goes to deal clarity, then it goes to origination, which means finding deals. How do you find them? Then it goes to due diligence. How do you know it's a good deal? How do you underwrite the deal is the term in finance. And then it goes to structuring. How do you structure the deal? Price terms, transition period. Then it goes to financing. How do you pay for it? SBA loans, seller financing, equipment loans. Then it goes to transition. What's your first 30, 60, 90 days of the business? And then it goes to closing. And so that 10-step deal is something that we in private equity charge you two and 20. We charge you a lot of money to do that for you. And in my belief, that system should be democratized because there are too many small businesses that need help right now. And the private equity firms are too big. They're not down here helping at the bottom. And so if more of us all buy these businesses, I actually think we're going to have a much healthier economy, which is how we did it. We have a goal to create 100,000 business owners in that segment. Love it. Love it. So tell us what is next for Cody Sanchez. What, what, where, where do you go from here? What is, I have a feeling that you have a lot more chapters to come. So what, what are the next chapter or two for you? I mean, I think the biggest thing right now is, um, I'm a little bit on a mission to get contrarian thinking to a million plus subscribers. I want, I want everyone to be able to get out of contrarian thinking what we really should have got in our MBAs. My belief is if you read contrarian thinking every single week, there is no reason why you should not be able to get financial freedom within six to 12 months. No reason. And you don't actually need, it's not just my lessons. I share lessons from a lot of other people, but the difference is we don't share just ideas. We have these playbooks where we essentially give you an idea to earn, and then we give you the entire step-by-step process on how to execute on it. And so I think that's missing in a lot of the content out there. It's like, hey, here's this idea and here's more and more and more ideas. And you almost get overwhelmed. And then at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, how do I even do this? And there's more ideas and which one should I do? And so the biggest thing for me is if I can get, you know, a million people sort of all thinking about how we can push the envelope in question and how we can achieve financial freedom, then maybe there are enough people there lifting other people up instead of pushing them down and, and we can have some change. So that that's the biggest goal for me overall. And we are going to do what you said. We're going to create a syndicate because I've realized a lot of people aren't ready to take the first step themselves. They need you know, they want a hand to hold for the first deal, which is, I totally get it. And so we're going to start doing deals where, where contrarians can actually invest alongside us and take the first step and realize they didn't die or lose all their money so they can go do one by themselves. Absolutely love it. Okay. Cody, I could, uh, honestly, I could, I could talk to you for the next 10 hours, but I know careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I know uh, that, that uh, you have a stop and, and we so, so, so appreciate you being here. This was an absolutely amazing episode. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to distill this down in the intro into just a a few nuggets, but uh, I guess that's my problem. Um, Thank you so much. I I do want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, where they can connect with you. Please mention the URL for contrarian thinking again, uh, and anything else you want to tell our listeners. 
Awesome. Yeah, I think the best thing to do is go to contrarianthinking.co, sign up for the newsletter. It's free. Get in the mix there. And then in that, you'll get access to unconventional acquisitions. I talk about it a ton. You'll get access to my Twitter, which is Cody Sanchez, where I'm super uh, sort of building in public and share a lot. But it all starts with contrarianthinking.co. Awesome. Cody, thank you so much for being with us. And we so look forward to following your journey and, uh, and all the good stuff to come. Thank you, Cody. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was an absolutely awesome and amazing episode. And again, I'm sad that this is the last one for the time being, but what an amazing way to go out. Thank you, Cody, for all that amazing advice. Listeners, community, thank you so much again for being with us for the past two years and all the support you've given us. Let's do this sign off one more time. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Sending gratitude to each and every one of you today. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.